Good morning, church family. My name is Ben DeSantis, and it is a privilege to worship with you this morning and to open God's Word. Our sermon text for today is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. These words come to us penned by the disciple that Jesus loved, and yet they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And these words are written as though it were Jesus himself speaking. Read read with me, please. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are continuing in a study of the Gospel of John. Uh, We actually started this almost three years ago. It was May and June of 2020 when we were still coming to you in large part virtually and um, the world was still shut down. The world was having a massive conversation about race and justice in the wake of the death of Ahmaud Arbery and, of course, George Floyd. Um, And we started that sermon series, and our goal was to slowly chip away at the Gospel of John. And so we've been doing that. We'll come and we'll look at a chapter for two or three weeks at a time, and then we'll move on to another series, and then we'll come back, um, and then we'll move on to another series. So we've been just kind of sprinkling a chapter of John in for the past uh, several years here at Christ's Covenant. And so today we come to John 9. This is the 23rd sermon in this larger series, and there's a lot to learn. We're actually going to be in John 9 and 10 over the next several weeks, two weeks here in John 9. Today we look at the blind man. Next week we'll look at the blind men. But two things that come out of this passage today, very important for us to talk about. Number one, the, the power of ideology, and of course, number two, the power of Jesus. Let's look at the power of ideology, you know, one, of the, one of the things that really concerns me, and I've been thinking a lot about this recently, is how ideological people are. We, we are in an ideological age. Uh, people are driven by ideology or ideological systems, more so than they are by real relationships or real conversations or real work or real interaction. Now, of course, I'm not against ideology. Christianity at its core is belief, right? It's a confession. We, we believe in a confession of faith. We hold true to things that we believe in. But of course, Christianity is more than a confession. It's a confession that's worked out. It's a confession that's lived out. So Christianity is not less than a confession, but it's so much more than a confession. But the thing that's particularly troubling 
to me about this time or this age that we find ourselves in is that so much of the ideology that drives the day is, of course, political ideology. And it's ubiquitous, and it's so divisive. There's, of course, always been political ideology, but it's never been so invasive. Yeah, I had a, a great conversation this week with some young men, and we were talking about how do you know what is true, right? How do you discern the truth? And of course, we know what is true by knowing God. And we, we can discern what is true by knowing God. And we can know God, and we can know what God has revealed, of course, fundamentally, primarily, in his word, in his scriptures. Jesus says in John 16 that, that he would, in a sense, go on teaching his disciples. And what he was talking about there was the revelation that he was going to bring to them by the power of the Holy Spirit, the revelation both in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the revelation, of course, that God was going to give, that Jesus was going to give through the inspired word, the word inspired, the spirit rather inspired scriptures. Jesus is teaching his church. He's forming his church. Jesus, our Lord, wants us to think biblically. That's his truth. So I've been just said, I love that he just said this. This is the word of Christ. This is, this is our Lord's word that we're trying to discern, that we're trying to think through. It's, it's, it's only this that, that will form our minds and hearts toward the truth. Now, here's the deal, though. I want you to hear this. If this is the only Bible you're getting, you know, if, if you're only getting 30 or 40 minutes of Bible teaching a week, and then you go out and listen to or watch 10 hours of political ideology, you won't think of the world through a biblical lens you'll think of the Bible through a political, ideological lens. We live in this age that is dominated by political ideology that's largely secular and very tribal. And I don't want us to be a people that fall victim to it. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be involved in politics. Don't, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that at all. I think, of course, that Christians should be. It's part of our stewardship that we should be engaged in the larger society around us and includes business and politics and all sorts of things. What I am saying, though, is that I don't want you to be dominated by political ideologies. I want you to know God. And then by knowing God, by thinking biblically about things, engage with the world. Not to think about scripture through a political lens, but rather to think about politics or business or all sorts of things through a biblical lens. Now, this is really hard. I want to say, this is hard in our age. It's hard in our age. This can't be the only Bible that you're getting. And if it is, if you're like, well, yeah, this is the only time I really think about the Bible every week, then you will fall victim to the age. Your, your faith, your, your, your knowledge of truth won't be pure. That's why we push things like the Rhythms Journal and our daily rhythm and Bible reading plans and podcasts like Think Through It. We, we want you thinking biblically about the world. You know, if you've studied missiology, if any of y'all ever studied missions or how missionaries engage in, in different societies, what they do, uh, oftentimes what, what happens on the mission field is what's called syncretism. And syncretism is where Christianity is introduced into a culture, but there is a tribal religion in that culture, wherever it may be, there is a tribal religion that's so strong that even though the people begin to kind of take hold of Christianity, it's syncretic, it gets synced in. It's, it's kind of a Christian blend with this other tribal religion. 
And we actually see the same thing. You know, Americans kind of look their nose down at things like that, but there is a tribal religion here. And it is this secular power ideology. And it shows up in Christianity. It shows up in American Christianity. When we have these human power structures of business, of politics, of the American dream, the Atlanta narrative that you hear me talk about, Christianity can get blended in with this in a very easy way. And it's very actually difficult to discern what is of the Lord and what is not of the Lord. So we need to humbly ask the Lord. I hope one of our prayers every day is that we would humbly ask God to make us wise and to see things as he sees them and to see his truth rightly and to not act like we all have it figured out, to humbly approach his word, to instruct us, to teach us so that we don't fall into some syncretic false religion. I bring this up because it comes out of the text. We see this same kind of impulse happening right here in the text. Now, John 9, it begins, you kind of have to read the end of John 8 to figure it out. It begins with Jesus in a bit of trouble. He was in the temple, and he said something in the temple that was incredibly explosive. They were asking him about his authority, and and they were talking, and he was talking about Abraham, and he basically said he had more authority than Abraham. Now, this was not something that you said if you wanted to stay in good with the Jewish culture of the day. In fact, he didn't just say he had more authority than Abraham. What he said was, if you can look at it, if you're there in your Bibles, the end of chapter eight, what he said was, before Abraham was, I am. And the Hebrew people of his time would have known that he was using the same kind of language that God used with Moses, that God used when he said, this is my name, I am. Jesus is saying, not only am I greater than Abraham, I am God. And the people were furious. Chapter eight ends with the people actually trying to stone Jesus and chasing him out of the temple. So the action here in chapter nine begins with him leaving the temple. This is important because this is where we find this man who was blind from birth. He was a blind man. He would have been a beggar. Couldn't have gone to the temple, and that's important. But he would off, but, but blind men and, and people with different ailments like this would go to the temple, obviously, to, to kind of take advantage of the charity of the people that had just went and worshipped the Lord. So this blind man was asking for some charity on the Sabbath day, and of course the disciples see him. And they ask Jesus, and we pick up here in in chapter two, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's the big why, right? Why did this bad thing happen? Why is there this injustice? Why is there this evil? Now, the Bible actually gives the big answer to this question, that evil and injustice in the world, that that suffering in the world, that these are the result of a fallen world. They're the result of sin in general, that the world is fallen, that, that, that the sin of humanity has, in a sense, distorted God's design for humanity. It has introduced suffering. It has introduced evil. It has introduced fallenness. But the Bible does not specify, and this is very important, Sin is the reason for suffering in general, but the Bible does not specify why bad things happen to particular people. 
why is this guy blind? And so what the disciples are doing is they're applying their particular ideology to this situation. And I can almost imagine it. Their ideology was not too different than the ideology of our day. I can almost imagine the disciples see this man and the disciples are discussing this. And the more conservative disciples, the more individualistic disciples said, you know what? Well, I know why this man is blind. It was his sin. You know, he sinned. It's, it's his fault. He, he, God knew that he was gonna be a bad man, that he was going to do something wrong. And that's why God made him blind. He bears the blame for them. It was his sin that made him blind. And if he wants to get out of this state of blindness and misery and begging, he needs to figure it out. He needs to do something. He needs to pull himself up by his bootstraps, right? But the more liberal disciples said, no, it wasn't his fault. He was born blind. It was his parents' fault, right? It was the unjust system that he is a part of. It was the systemic injustice that, that is all around him. That, he's not the problem here. It's not his fault. He's actually the victim here, right? So they're bringing their ideologies, their preconceived notions to the situation. And they go to Jesus and they say, okay, we, we're having this discussion. Was it his fault or was it pa- his parents' fault? Was it, is this an individual issue or is it a systemic issue? And Jesus rebukes them both. And what Jesus is doing here, and this needs to be said today, he says it to them, but you need to hear this too. We all need to hear this. He said, he's saying to them in a sense, your ideology has caused you to oversimplify something very complex. You are taking a very complex situation and reducing it to a soundbite. The Bible tells us that suffering does come from sin in general, but not necessarily from sin in particular. And if you go around trying to do the math on which sin led to this particular suffering, you will drive yourself crazy and you will miss the bigger thing that's going on here. You know, this text is similar to Luke 13. Luke 13, there was two instances that happened. Pilate had killed a group of Galileans and there was a tower in Siloam. It was a tragedy of the day. There was this tower in Siloam that had fell and just killed 18 people. It was a tragedy of the day. This tower fell down and and killed some people. And, and, the, and all the people were applying the same logic. Oh, well, those people must be worse sinners than others. What, what sin attached itself to those people that this tragedy would befall them? And of course, Jesus says, this is Luke 13, he says, do you not think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, (laughs) but unless you repent, you will likewise all perish. What Jesus is saying here is that your preconception, your assumption, and I want you to hear this. (laughs) He's saying your assumption here is that God owes you a long and comfortable life. And the only way to mess that up is to sin really bad. God owes you a long and comfortable life and a life of ease. And the only way to really mess that up is to sin really bad. And that assumption misses the most fundamental human fact. And that is the fact that you were made, you were created for God, not the other way around. You 
you were made for God. You were made for God's glory. And the most important thing is not that you would have comfort or ease or success. The most important thing is that you would know God and commune with God and delight in God and live for his glory. And what Jesus is saying here to them and what he says to us is that you all have sin in your hearts. And so repent, turn away from anything that isn't the Lord and turn towards him. You were made for God. It's the old Westminster Catechism that says it this way, man's chief end, the, the, the reason that you were created, the chief end of your life, the chief purpose of your life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let's go back to our text. This is what Jesus goes on to say. It's like, it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents It's not the point here, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You're missing the bigger point here, disciples. You're trying to do the math on what is the easiest way to comfort. But but the reason that we're in this situation, the reason this thing has happened is that God's glory might be displayed. Is that the power of God might be known in this situation. It's not our comfort. It's not our ease. It's the glory of God. And if you can just live this way, if we can find this, if we can believe what Jesus is saying here, your life will have so much freedom and so much rest. You can trust the care and the providence of God. You won't be given to these worldly ideologies. You'll be given to the glory of God. So we've looked at the power of ideology, but but secondly, I want to look with you at the power of Jesus So we've just said that suffering is not necessarily or even regularly the cause of sin in particular, but it's the cause of sin in general. Now, of course, suffering can be the cause of sin in particular. There are consequences in the world, right? If you you rob the bank and you get caught and you go to jail and you're suffering in jail, well, yes, that suffering is the cause of sin in particular. But but you can't always do that. What Jesus is saying here is that's, it's too simplistic and wrong to always treat suffering like that. This suffering happened, he's saying. This man is blind that God's glory may be revealed, that God may be displayed in him. Something bigger is going on here. Don't miss it. Last Sunday night, I, I had the opportunity to go to a dinner that was done to commemorate, to honor the 15th anniversary of a great tragedy. Catherine Wolfe, um, who some of you know from the ministry Hope Heals, she was a young mother, wonderful Christian, married to a godly man. In April of 2008, she suddenly collapsed with a massive brain stem stroke. It should have killed her, but somehow she survived. And of course, still today, she still bears the signs of that stroke. It was a horrible tragedy. It was nobody's fault. Just a horrible reality of a fallen world. This 26-year-old woman. It's a mother, wife. But the result of that great tragedy, and we celebrated this on last Sunday night, the result of that great tragedy is now this beautiful ministry, Hope Heals, that was born out of it. And every year, thousands of handicapped individuals are ministered to, they're loved on, they're they're appointed to Jesus. This couple could have gotten bitter. They could have gotten angry. They could have made themselves the victim here. They could have just said, God, why did you do any of this? But they, they, you know what they did? They, rather than asking the Lord why, (laughs) 
they started asking God, what do you want to do? How are you going to show your glory through this? And the Lord has been at work. Something beautiful was born out of this suffering and tragedy. Is that how you look at tragedy? Is that how you look at suffering in your life? Your life is the Lord's. You were made for God. Do you look at tragedy that way and say, I'm here to display the works of God, even in, even in my worst day? And here's the deal. Jesus has done something so beautiful in the life of the wolves, but that's what he does. That's what Jesus does in tragedy. Even though our, Jesus is so glorious that he can take our greatest tragedies and make them glorious. You know, the fact that this story is in your Bible is not accidental. King David, when he became the king of Israel... He ruled first in the city of Hebron for seven years. And then he moved his capital, he moved his city, if you will, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was established. Now, before David came to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a Jebusite city. And when, Je when David came to, to claim, if you will, Jerusalem for the people of God, this is in 2 Samuel 5, the Jebusite king basically came out from Jerusalem, a well-fortified city, and he laughed at David. And he said, you want to take this city? And what he said to David was this. He says, if you try to take us, even our blind and our lame could defeat you. Even the blind and the lame Jebusites could ward you off. And of course, David did take the city. It did become Jerusalem. It did become this place where David reigned, the place of the eventual temple, this great city that still remains to this day, this important global city. But David remembered the statement of the Jebusite king. <laughs> the blind and the lame could ward you off. And he resented that statement. And because of that, David would not allow any blind person or any lame person into the house of worship and then later into the temple. And of course, this carried on from, from David, and this is still going on here in the time of Jesus for a thousand years. No blind, no lame were allowed in the temple. So we come to the Gospel of John. Now, John tells us there were many things that Jesus did. In fact, so many things that Jesus did that, that you couldn't write them all down. You know, all the world could not contain all the books that could be written about the things that Jesus did. But John only tells us about two healings that Jesus did while he was in Jerusalem. This is one of those. The first is in John 5 at the pool of Bethesda. It says Jesus saw a lame man. He was trying to get in the pool. Remember this story? The water would be stirred. Someone would always go in before the man. And this is the story where Jesus looked at this lame man, had been lame for 38 years, and he says, take up your mat and walk. And what is the first place that this man who had been lame for 38 years, what's the first thing he did? What, where's the first place he went? Do you know where he went? He went to the place that he'd never been able to go before. He went to the house of God. He went to the temple. And here in John 9, Jesus is coming out of the temple. And he meets this blind man, as it were, trying to get into the temple. And what happens? Jesus heals him. Now, how he heals him is so interesting. And you got to understand, what is going on here? If you notice in the story, what does he do? We can look down here. It says, he spit on the ground, <laughs> and he made mud, 
with the saliva and he anointed the man's eyes with mud. Now, very interesting, right? It's not what you would expect. <laughs> Jesus is gonna heal somebody, he spits on the ground, takes the mud and he forms it. What is Jesus doing? Well, in order to understand how he healed in verse six, you have to go back to verse four and five. Let me read those. Jesus says to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me, this is his father, while it is day, night, okay, notice the juxtaposition there, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light, keyword here, of the world. And what we see in this is this theme that comes up over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, this theme of light and darkness. John 1.5, light shines in the world and the darkness has not overcome it. John 3.19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, after this, 46, I have come to the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What we see in these passages, what we see all throughout John is there is this theme in the ministry of Jesus of light and darkness. In a sense, you could understand the ministry and the life of Jesus this way as light breaking into a dark world. And when you see the ministry of Jesus and when you hear the teaching of Jesus and when you experience the power of Jesus, what you're getting in those are glimpses, they're tastes, they're, 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 they're shadows of the light to come. When the kingdom of Jesus is fully known, when Jesus will make all things new, when Jesus will make all things right, when, when Jesus will take all broken things, all the broken things of the world and make them whole, he will bring about a new creation. And so what is Jesus doing here? Don't you see what's going on here? Here he is, just as God did in the very beginning of time. His hands are in the dirt. And he is, in a sense, forming this new man, putting mud, shaping mud, giving this man, in a sense, new eyes. He anoints this man with mud. And then he says, and this is, don't, don't let this be lost on you either. We're celebrating baptism later today. Don't, don't let this be lost on you. What does he say? He says, go wash in the pool. Now, the pool of Siloam was at the very bottom of the hill, kind of up to, go, you would go up to the, to the temple. I just was there in Jerusalem. It was a cleansing pool. And actually, they just are excavating right now. I mean, like in the last year, they've been excavating the pool of Siloam and they're, and they're discovering just as it would have been here. And, and so pilgrims would come into Jerusalem and they would go to the pool of Siloam, but before they could go up to the temple, the holy place of God, they would go wash in the temple. They would rather wash in the pool. And it was, a, it was a place of ceremonial cleansing. And what they would do, in a sense, it was a baptism. They would go down into the water, in a sense, to kind of get rid of the old self, and they would come out a different staircase. There's these two big staircases there at the pool of Siloam. They would come up a different staircase as a new person, as a new man, a new Woman, the old man with all of its sin was put off. The new man was put on. Don't you see what's going on here? Here's this blind man. He's been blind his whole life. And he has an encounter with Jesus. And he's totally remade. He's new. He is a new creation. And for the first time ever, he is welcome into the presence of God. 
And Jesus is taking this thousand-year precedent that the blind and lame are not welcome, and he is turning it on its head, saying, come to me. All you who are lame and blind and weak and weary, come to Jesus. He will remake you. He will renew you. He will invite you into the very presence of God. And you know how simple it is? I love this. You know how simple it is? The power of Jesus, he just says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. I don't know how you came here today. You know, I don't know what suffering you carry. You know, for some of you, it's the suffering of illness. You, you sit in this room and there is illness that has been plaguing you. For some of you, it's terminal illness. You have met the disease that will likely kill you. For some of you, you come here today with the suffering of a lost loved one. You buried a spouse, you buried a child, a friend, brother, sister. And you have no idea why they are gone and you are still here. Some of you come today with enormous shame. You have been a bad dad. You've been a lousy wife or husband. You've been selfish. You've been given to some addiction that you just can't break. And you may even be thinking, all of these bad things are happening to me because I did this. I did this bad thing, and you're tired of feeling so bad all the time. Some of you walk in here today with the suffering of anxiety or financial stress. Some of you just hate your job. Many of you are here today. I know you are lonely. You're so lonely, and you're tired of being lonely. Some of you walk in here today with this feeling of, I've done exactly what I was supposed to do my entire life, and the one thing that I wanted hasn't gone my way. You're questioning God. You're questioning his goodness. I want you to hear the message of this story today. I can't explain to you why all of that has happened to you. I can't do the math for you, right? And say, well, it was this sin, it was this. <laughs> Jesus says, don't do that. That's not, that's not what this is all about. There's something bigger going on here. There will be people that try to do that. There will be people that try to do that. They'll, they'll apply guilt. They'll say, well, yeah, you should have done better. Of course this is happening to you. Of course this is happening to you. You should have done better. You, you, you messed up there. This is just what it, this is just how it goes. Or there'll be people that come around on the other side and say, well, you're the victim, right? You should be angry. You should be bitter. It's your parents. It's the rich people. It's the poor people. It's the black people. It's the white people. It's these kind of people, right? There will be people that bring all kinds of ideologies around you to make sense of your suffering and will never make sense of it. But Jesus comes along and says, look, your suffering is there. Hear this. Your suffering is there that the work of God might be displayed in you. So trust Jesus. Look to Jesus. And he can change your life in an instant. He went. He washed. He came back seen. Now, Jesus may not heal your blindness today, right? He may not heal your illness. He may not, you know, bring back to life the person that you've lost. He may not dump a bunch of money on you to overcome your financial struggle. But, but what he will do is he will let you see God. 
He will give you the hope of the new creation. He, he will let you see that God is doing something bigger than your life, and your life is not just for you, but for God, for his power, for his glory. And, and actually, his strength and power is made perfect in your weakness and suffering. And Jesus will comfort you. He will give you a sense of purpose and strength, even in the deepest sorrow. Now, the question becomes, how? How does Jesus do this? If, if you just said suffering is the result of sin in general, so how does Jesus take suffering and produce so much good? And don't you see, Jesus can make so much sense of suffering because he himself is the great sufferer. No one has suffered more than Jesus. No one has suffered more than Jesus. Jesus took on all sin. Jesus suffered for all in our place. He took on all shame. He became the curse. He took on the curse that, that should have befallen us so that we could be redeemed, so that he could redeem the whole world. Jesus can make sense of our suffering because he himself is the great sufferer who suffered in our place so that he could bring us into the very presence of God. Don't you, don't you see that he's undoing the fallenness of the world? He is making all of the sad things come untrue. Yeah, I didn't mention that these healings, I didn't make a point of it, these healings in John, the lame man and the blind man, they both take place on the Sabbath. You know, the whole ministry of Jesus is about light breaking into darkness. They're, they're little signs. Whenever you see a healing, whenever you see teaching in Jesus, whenever you see it in this life now, they're all signs. They're signposts. We're about to see a baptism. You know what that is? It's all a signpost that Jesus is making things right, that he's healing the world, that he's making all things new. And the, so is the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is itself. The author of Hebrews explains this. It's a, it's a sign of the rest of God. It's a sign of the final rest of God that he wants to give us this eternal rest where all is made well, where all of your suffering will one day make sense. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians where he says the perishable body must put on the imperishable body and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. All the pain, all the sorrow, the loss, all the death <laughs> will one day be swallowed up by the power of the resurrection, by the victory of Jesus. And you know what happens when you swallow something? You know what happens when you swallow something? I had a great meal last night. You know what happens when you swallow something? You get bigger. And what this is saying is the, the suffering that you are enduring today, it's going to be swallowed up. It's going to be swallowed. It's going to make the eternal victory of Jesus all the bigger the momentary suffering that we all endure, and some of you are enduring in a very intense way today, listen, friend, will one day be all the sweeter in the victory of Jesus. It'll be all the bigger in the victory of Jesus. So hold fast to the words we sang earlier, Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm, 
When the winds of doubt blow through me and all my sails have been torn, in the suffering and the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath, we will cross the great horizon, clouds behind, and life secure. And the calm of that day will be the better for the storms that we endure. Let's pray together. Father, Help us to look to Jesus today and now. He went, he washed, he came back seeing. I pray, Father, that we, in response to these words, would go, we would wash, we would obey, we would look to Christ, and we would come back seeing seeing how good he is and seeing, looking to the day when all of the trials that we face in this life will be renewed. Thank you for the little signposts you give us along the way. Thank you for the renewals that are happening all around us. Even look around the room and I know there's been suffering that has been redeemed and renewed even in this room today. Thank you for the signpost of baptism we're about to see. Thank you for the signpost of a, a good meal with friends that, that remind us this world is not as bad as it seems, Lord, but you are working your redeeming power in it. So may all of these things point our hearts to you, oh God. May we trust you more deeply. May we hold fast to Jesus more firmly. May we believe in his redeeming power. And this I pray.